Will things in this troubled world ever be better? Will it ever get better? Will there ever be a, an end to all this stuff that's going on in the world? War and crime and chaos. Will it ever come to an end? And the church answers with a resounding, Yes, it will. <laughs> I had to yell that because that got our attention, right? Yes. Yes. It, all of this chaos is going to come to an end. That's what Revelation is about. The subject for today is one of the best topics that you could possibly be on in Scripture outside of maybe the cross and resurrection. And this is just as important. It's called the second coming of Christ. It's the return of the King. Boy, could they make a movie out of that one, right? The return of the King. But they just botch it up. <laughs> but, I want to tell you, we sometimes forget how important the second advent of Christ is. Um, you know, really, we get sometimes so consumed with what's going on in the world that we really forget about where all this is heading anyway. This stuff has to happen before Christ comes back. So, you know, the second coming, I think, is a great thing to be preoccupied with. To have your mind dwelling on it. Our topic is dealing with that today in Revelation 19. The very return of Christ the King. It's one of the most stunning, one of the most important events ever in the history of the universe. Now you're not going to see that on any of the uh, television stations that are presenting stuff that is just out there and crazy. Travel Channel and such. And they're always talking about UFOs and all the other stuff. And then when you think about this, this is going to be an identified flying object. <laughs> when he comes back, they're all going to know who he is. Amen. They're going to see him. There will be believers there. There will be a lot of unbelievers there. And uh, they have no place to hide, no place to go. We've been waiting for this event all of our Christian lives. You know that? We wait for it today. I can't think of anything more exciting that's on the calendar than this. I mean, this is one incredible day. So, you know, everybody's always saying, this is the best, this is the greatest, this is the most astonishing, the biggest happening, the most important event. No. This thing that is going to happen with Christ coming back is it. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep your mind, your hearts on this return. This is where we find our hope. Great. What a glorious event. It's stupendously glorious. And we look forward to Jesus' coming. It's the culmination of human history. If you read the Old Testament, you find plenty of verses dealing with the first coming. And well, we should. He had to come the first time. But you look also in the Old Testament and you'll find verse after verse after verse dealing with the second coming. So the Old Testament prophets 
surely talked about this. No doubt they did. And we think of uh, many, many verses. And the one I think of that's incredible is found in Zechariah back near the end of the prophets in the minor prophets section. And just before you get to the New Testament, it pretty well anyway, it uh, talks about in Zechariah 14 where all the nations gather in the city of Jerusalem and then in verse 4 it says, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley. So that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. There is the return of Christ. It tells exactly where He's going to come back to, the Mount of Olives. So many times when he was in Jerusalem, that's where he would go and uh, pray. And uh, that is a tremendous location. That's where he left, and that's where he comes back, And as it's stated in Acts, where he ascended. As the apostles looked and the angels said, uh, why do you just stand there? Don't you know whenever he, he will come back in like manner? So, now, we have the prophets who spoke of that. We could spend all day and look at second coming passages in there. But uh, we'll keep moving on. By the way, did you know that there are 1,527 verses dealt with it in that, uh, that section? There's no other topic except for faith and salvation itself that is mentioned more. Second coming. Uh, second coming versus the first coming, did you know that it is eight to one of mentioning of that in the Old Testament? You think of the prophecies and there's like 300 dealing with His first coming. There are 1,200. That might be four to one or something like that. But then you think of all the New Testament and such. And so there you have that ratio. Second coming is important, folks. We get the privilege of looking at this today. Now, not only the prophets mentioned, but you have Jesus Himself mentioning it. Uh, several times, you'll see Him most explicitly in Matthew 24 and 25. Also, Luke 21. Also, uh, Mark, I think it's in 13. All dealing with the return of Christ. He promised it. So the Lord Himself talked about it. And then the apostles, all throughout the epistles, many, many verses dealing with the second coming. Well, let's go on through history of the church. I always like church history. You begin with the early church fathers. There was one who uh, wrote about that called Ignatius of Antioch. Early church fathers are the ones after the apostles died or nearly within that time, starting really late in the first century and on into the second century and the third century. They're the ones who were in the early church and who did writings. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch wrote this to the churches. There were seven writings that he had that are still here, like letters. Uh, here's one. Christ was received up to the Father and sits on His right hand waiting till His enemies are put under His feet. That's what we've been looking at all throughout Revelation, haven't we? 
And then finally the climactic seventh bowl judgment is emptied and then Christ comes back. And that's where we're at today. And then uh, Arrhenius, second, third century father, wrote this, appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father to comprehend all things under one head. That means referring to the second advent and everything coming under one and being under the head of God. Tertullian, uh, which is a Latin father, uh, second and third century, wrote these words. Simple. He will come with glory. You see, the church has always believed this. It is essential to believe this doctrine. You cannot believe in Christ without believing in the second coming of Him. It's just as essential as His first coming and the Word of God and Christ being the only one who could save us. Those essentials. And then... As the church went through the ages, you had the Apostles' Creed that was developed. There's a statement there that says, from whence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And then you had the confessions. The confessions of faith. We have what's called, uh, really, what came from the Westminster Confession, but we have ours as our own confession. And... uh, these confessions are saying, here's what we believe. They're like creeds, only the, the doctrine is accented more. You have more depth to it. So here's the Augsburg Confession, which the Lutheran Church adopted. And yes, they believe in the second coming too. <laughs> uh, said this, Also they, the churches, teach that in the consummation of the world, Christ shall appear to judge and shall raise up all the dead, and shall give unto the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joy. But ungodly men and the devils shall he condemn into endless torments. Just basically said in a sentence or so there really is what that is. But it's showing that yes, they believed in this. And that can cover many, many years really. The Belgic Confession, our Lord Jesus Christ, will come from heaven with great glory and majesty. 39 articles of the Church of England. He ascended into heaven and there sits until He returns. Westminster Confession says, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly and their adversity. The Baptist had uh, different confessions. One of them was called the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place. You see, this has been said by the prophets, the apostles. Jesus Himself, you have the early church fathers and the creeds that were written and then the confessions. They all are in testimony in unity. Saying the same thing. They do not disagree on this essential. So it's very important, isn't it? This is a historic faith of the church. Don't ever discount church history because when you look at it, 
for the most part, they are agreeing with what has been said in the Old and the New Testament. And they carry it on. And here we are 2,000 years later after Christ. And we believe the same thing all the saints have believed. This one topic is what we look at today. And it's the literal bodily return of Jesus Christ. Let's read it. This is one of my favorite passages, folks. This is incredible. Let's stand. This is awesome. Awesome indeed. We should be in awe of this. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. You want to look at Christ? Here we go. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Great Heavenly Father, through this Scripture we see heaven open. And we see bursting out of it is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior in all His glory, in all His raiment that we are just amazed by. This is Christ Himself. And then we see, Lord, that we are with Him. Oh, Lord, we look to this day. What a hope You've given us. This is what it's all about. Because this will show the triumphantness of Christ. We are the church triumphant. Because our Lord is triumphant. And we've thought of the historical writings and the biblical writings and they're all in agreement. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. The triumphant Christ. The return of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know what? I think about this and there's a lot of different views on Revelation. And when it really comes down to it though, Sometimes it's a matter of a, a few years, seven years. To others, it's maybe a little bit more taken in a spiritual way. But they're all relating to the fact that this is all going to happen. Everybody believes in that little re return of Christ. And that's really what this is all about. Despite all the disagreements, and there's going to be a lot of things in my take of Revelation up to right now that has really been sometimes a little bit of conjecture, but using Scripture, thinking that this could be the right way. But you know what? Through all the years of the church, they 
or agree. He's going to come back in this way. So we don't have to make any kind of conjectures here at all. Sometimes it's kind of good to imagine it could be this way. That helps us get a picture. But really, for Him coming back, our hope is just... It's, it's been anchored. We know He's there in heaven, but He's not going to stay there. He's going to come back for us. So we look at verse 11, and we looked at the first 10 verses last week, and we saw the hallelujahs, and we, we did the, the hallelujah kind of thing, and Christ coming back and getting ready to, right? And talked about the bridegroom and the bride, and the wedding the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's just beautiful, wasn't it? So, if you happen to miss that, it is on YouTube, Facebook, and our website. So much for the advertisement. I was just saying, hey, that's a glorious passage. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's look now at the return of Christ. This is the moment, folks. The gates of heaven just burst open. And the Lord appears. And that's why I think this is where Carolyn came in. I saw the Lord seated on His throne. Right? Of course, really, that's Isaiah 6. But, uh, you know, if we are with the Lord at that time, if we've died and gone to heaven, then we're with Him. But this is John representing, looking at this. What a vision this is. I saw heaven open. He's just seeing amazing things. And behold, and when it says behold, folks, there's an exclamation there. It's saying, look at this. Look what I saw. You know, he had to, he had to explain this. Expect a fuller development of the apocalypse right here where we're at. We read chapter 1 and we saw a vision of Christ, the vision that John saw. He saw Christ in all of His glory. And in His judgment clothes as He came to avenge the blood of the saints. He, became, he came here to make a righteous judgment. And, you know, like eyes like a flaming fire. And those kind of things are reiterated here. And so the development here is at its peak, at its top of what Christ is doing. Now there's... A picture here, a representative of Jesus Christ on a horse. This is a great contrast when he uses horse here because you remember that there was in Revelation 6 a rider on a white horse. But that was the Antichrist. This rider on a white horse in this picture is none other than Jesus Christ in His glory. And He's the true rider that's on this horse. This is not the Antichrist. This is Christ. Uh, that would be quite a sight. The backdrop of blackness. And out of that blackness, all of a sudden comes the brilliant, radiant, Jesus Christ, and it's a picture of a white horse. I don't know how this really looks ultimately, but there He is. 
It's also a contrast to how he came the first time. He rode not on a white horse, but on a what? A colt upon the foal of a donkey. That's how he came. What was that representing? Humbleness. He came in all humility, lowliness. Zechariah talks about that. Zechariah 9 9. Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament. Chapter 9 9. Here's another prophecy of Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation humbled and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's His first coming. He came as the King. There were a lot of people thronged around Him. But, did the nation accept Him as King? No. They crucified Him. So, but He came here in a lowly way. From the point of His birth, to how He was born, how He lived in a very humble way, and how He served in a very humble way. That's Christ our Lord. The second time, folks, there will be no mistake who the King is. Most people didn't get it. This time, they will. And that's why you get the picture of a white horse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He's an exalted one. We've been singing about that this morning, haven't we? 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And I'll stop there. That's the triumphant Christ. Thanks be to God who always leads us. Not only at the return of Christ, but He's doing it right now. See, I say that because this is Gospel, folks. This gives us hope. We win. We are winners right now because of Christ. He always leads us in triumph. You say, you don't know my last week or so. <laughs> it's okay. He was leading, folks. You remember that word, providence? You guys remember that? That's our word for the day. I'm going to start doing this for the kids. Quote kids. That's for all of us. Because we want to emphasize that. That's my little message to them, is providence. Here He guarantees that always He's with us. We'll be with Him and see Him and be with Him when He returns. We'll see that in a moment. Okay, now, Revelation 19, I saw heaven open. Behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called... Faithful and true. We're breaking all of this down, right? So let's go to faithful and true. What's that mean? Well, his counterpart, the Antichrist, was unfaithful and untrue. He was called the false Christ. There was also the false prophet. What is Satan? A liar. A deceiver. He is the father of lies. Jesus Christ is the exact opposite. So he is... True or truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Christ. Come through Him. Come through Christ. 
So, um, faithful and true. He speaks the truth. His Word is truth. Everything is truth. I turn on the TV today and almost everything that I see from the, I guess you could say, the worldly reporting, which is really not reporting, but it's lies that's been made up. I can't trust a thing that is said on the CBS, NBC, CNN, even Fox. Fox has a lot of things that are true, and then other things you go, oh, what are they doing there? Why? They? But what am I saying? I'm just saying that, you know, from the world, you're not going to get truth. It doesn't matter if we live in this time or go back hundreds of years ago. People lie. That's what Satan does. That's what people do. They lie. But Christ, He is the truth. He comes in righteousness, it says here, faithful and true. We can count on Him, can't we? And in righteousness, He judges. We've talked about that all the way through the, the judgment period here, uh, through the seven seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments. And He is judging exactly, perfectly. We talked about righteousness last week. Perfect, perfect justice. We don't get that today in this witness constantly in the courts. We don't get fairness. We don't get justice. We see it constantly after another. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court in Missouri. So we know about that. We have some here that know about that. And then we have Supreme Court United States, and we're not even getting justice out of that. Okay, the next one it says, He wages war. He wages war. You mean the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is called the King of Peace, wages war? Yes, He does. He wages war. It means to go to war. Whenever He first came, He came to feed the hungry, to minister to the needy, to heal the sick, to cast the demons from the oppressed, give peace to troubled hearts. That's what He did when He came first, wasn't it? And well, He did, like no other man ever has. Also, when He comes back, though, we, uh, we have to realize that He is one who is involved with war. He wages war. If you can remember Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, you have the crossing of the Red Sea. The children of Israel are being led out of Egypt, which is representing the world and bondage. It's a great spiritual analogy. Moses leads them through there. It's God that's doing the whole thing. They get deliverance. It's salvation for them. And a song is written after that. It's called the Song of Moses. And it says in verse 3, The Lord, that's Yahweh, is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Yahweh is His name. The Lord is a warrior. This is, Tony, the greatest Marine ever. I'm telling you, this is the warrior of warriors. David was a picture of him. Only a picture. Christ is the warrior. All other warriors can't even compare. When sin reaches its final moment, even when God has unleashed His worst of His wrath before Christ comes back, did you know that people are still going to deny Him? 
And so, all those who participate in unbelieving all the claims of Christ and all what He has done through all that time will be destroyed. Mercy abused brings the executioner. That's who Christ is. He's the executioner. Now, we get a real good description of Him in verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. How else do you describe Christ? A flame of fire. Can you imagine this in a video room? How would you do this? I don't think you can. I've seen people try to draw it and I go, I don't know. You know it's a great drawing. Super artistry there, but I don't know. You can't really capture this in any kind of visual way until that day. Whatever this is. But He gives us the best that He can get and the best we can understand. Right here. Right here. A flame of fire. Back in Revelation 1.14, it said, John wrote, His head and His hair were white like white wool like snow and His eyes were like a flame of fire. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of omniscience. It's a penetrating judgment. See, He has to see everything perfectly to make that perfect judgment. You see, judges and people who sit in judgment, they don't always see everything clearly. They may even think they do. And they're trying their best. But they still don't see what the whole truth is. He does. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Hey kids, here's a new word for you. Theological term, omniscient. I'll say it this way. Let's say it. To know all. Does God know all things? Yes. When Christ makes a judgment, He knows all things. He can do that. You know it's going to be just. He sees it the way it really is. So, with a flash, with fire, it's penetrating, burning eyes that He has. To judge rightly, He sees all. Nothing escapes Him. Next. And on His head are many diadems, crowns. It's not Stephanos here. That would be the kind that would be, you know, like Reese put on the head of an Olympic runner. And a lot of times you see that, and even through Revelation we've seen that. That kind of crown is saying you won the race, but they perish. This is a diadem. And many diadems. Multiple, multiple diadems. What's that mean? Well, you see, that means royalty. It means royal dignity, royal authority. It means sovereignty over all. He's a warrior, right? He's a judge. He's an executioner. And he's a sovereign king. Many diadems is representing that he is sovereign over all, he has all the kingdoms. Do you remember the dragon had seven crowns in Revelation? The beast had ten. When Jesus comes back, 
He doesn't have ten or seven. He has them all. He has all the diadems. Total control over all those evil, wicked nations. Even including the United States of America. Don't we like Him like that? We love Him. Lord, 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 thank You for showing this to us. I can live a life every day knowing this kind of stuff. See how practical this is? It's not just in the by and by, but even now. But I will tell you, it does get better, doesn't it? This is for you guys. Do you get it? Does this help you live your life? We just don't have hope for the future. We have hope right now, right? And then, this is all Christ, folks. We're looking at Christ in His glory. Wow. And He has a name written on Him, which no one knows except Himself. Anybody here going to say? I know I always say that when it comes to that, but people will say that. They'll say, well, what is it? You don't know? I don't know. The greatest theologians in the world don't know. Angels don't even know, probably. Nobody knows. That's what it says here. Nobody knows except himself. There's a name about him. What's the idea of that? Well, you see, it means it's incomprehensible. There are things about God that we can never, ever know. You say, yeah, but we have eternity. That's the idea. It will take eternity, which means never ending. We will never know all the things about Christ that we know. And most people say, well, I know a lot about Jesus. I've even heard people say, I know everything there is to know about Jesus. Come on, really? Are you kidding me? I've actually heard that. People wouldn't come to church or go to Sunday school. I've already heard that. I know that. I don't need to go there. It's all old hat. It's just stuff I've heard before. Why do I need to go? Well, it's even much more than just hearing the Word of God preached. It's actually praising God, praying to God, uh, being together with His people. And by the way, it behooves us to be at that time where God gets together with His people. Because it's a divine appointment. That's how important it is to be where He is. You don't want to miss out on that. So, But we will never know all about Christ. We have right here more than I can ever know about Christ. And He's revealed everything to us in this time period. We have Old and New Testament the most that anybody has ever had in history. And now with all the commentaries and all the dictionaries and maps and everything that we have and computers and everything, we can just get it at that quickly. We have no excuse. We have everything that we need to live pertaining to godliness, to live the life that Christ has given us. 
that we are to do. We have no excuse. We haven't. But there are things that we will never know. There are unknowable realities in His nature. We could never fathom the fullest of this mystery. Have you noticed in your Christian walk as you read and study His Word personally and then hear it preached through different ministries and all the stuff you have and you learn things that you never knew before? Every time you get together and you study God's Word in a Bible study and worship, isn't there something that you picked up that you never knew? Amen. Or it should be. Not necessarily because of what I say, because God's Word is so powerful, it jumps off the page. Now we might even see things there that I never even say out of my mouth. But you just read it and you go, oh wow, I never saw that before like that. Wow, we just, we just keep knowing. You know what? This is eternal life that we may know Him intimately. Intimately. We will do that for eternity. That's what it's about. It's not about all the things that are going on in the world. It's about Him, knowing Him right now. But His name... We'll never be able to fathom the depth of all He is. And if you even start trying, it'll start making you want to get under the bed and start reciting the Greek alphabet. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got into some depth, and then you keep thinking more and more of it, you know? And it drives you to the point of you, there's no answer <laughs> for it. God, I just trust you. So... A robe dipped in blood. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The blood, of course, is not His own. You would think, oh, that's the blood that came from the cross. Uh, this second coming is dealing with what He is doing at this time. He's the kings, the king of kings. And he is slaughtering the kings of the earth. By the way, it's down through the ages. Look at the Old Testament, how he has defeated uh, the nations of the world. The Egypts, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medians, the Greeks, the Romans, all throughout history. He brought on judgment to them. There is blood there. When he comes back, there is a bloodbath happening at Armageddon. He overcomes the world, doesn't he? It's evident from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 2. By the way, in verse 15, when we get into Revelation 19:15, there are four passages that were taken out of the Old Testament, jammed into one verse that are prophetic of this time right here. This day that we're talking about. That's incredible. I'll get into that in a moment. But look at Isaiah 63.2. This happens to be one of them. Isaiah 63.2. It's not His first coming. It says in verse 2, Why is your apparel red? and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the wine, trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath, 
and that their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. The robe dipped in blood. That's how the commentators that I read, they were all in agreement on that, so I had no problem saying that. In chapter 17, we read a, a revelation. We read in verse 14, These will wage war with, against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So, uh, there we have, He's the overcomer physically of the kings of the earth. And then it says in Revelation 19, as we move further, his name is called the Word of God. And you can say, well, that's it. Earlier it said that only He knows. And then it says His name is called the Word of God. You know how many names that Christ has? Amen. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. But the church knows Him as the Word of God. The Word of God. That's one of His many names. There is a name that nobody knows. This name... By the way, he has a name that we has a new name for us that we don't even know yet. I got a feeling at that time we will. He'll have a new name, just like you remember uh, Israel. His first name was named Jacob, which means deceiver. Uh, I think we need to change that name. And it turned into Israel, which means to persist or to wrestle with God. That's what Israel has done all their time. They've wrestled. They've persisted with God. They still are persisting with Him. Interesting. Isaiah 63, 2 there. And then we get the Word of God. That's, boy, that's special to us. In the beginning was the Word of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. The Word of God. Is that special to us? It means He is God. In Hebrews 1, 3, 2 and 3, He is the very radiance, the very character, the very nature of God who can be seen. Uh, it says that in Colossians, that it's uh, in chapter one, verse fifteen. He is the the invisible God has been revealed through the Son of God, the Word of God. He is the preeminent one. He is the one who is supremely special, of great value, the greatest value. So now we have looked at the return of the king. Let's look at verse 14. And this is the return of the armies of the king. He's coming back, but not alone. He himself, all he needs is himself to fight. But the armies that are arrayed in their warfare, in their white linen, coming back with them. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
Who is it? Who are they? What's the host of heaven? I'm right. I also will say it's the church. They were clothed in fine linen. Go back to verse 8 in this chapter. Last week it said, it was talking about in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. We looked at Ephesians 5 on that also. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's the church. It's us. We're with Him. We're coming back. We're in the sky, folks. Comes out of heaven and out of the, the, uh, the eastern sky. He cracks the sky. Coming with Him. Like us. It was given her to clothe herself in fine linen. That's a symbol of perfect righteousness. The righteous acts of the saints. We are declared righteous now. One day we will be perfectly righteous. What is justification? To be declared right. Are we righteous in everything we do today? No. But we're declared righteous, we are just. As far as God is concerned, that's how we can come to Him, to the Holy One. But you see, at this time, we have been glorified. We will be perfect. We can never sin again. Everything we do will be glorious. It will be perfect. It will always be right. Do we look for that? Okay. So, uh, if we looked in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we get a group of people during the tribulation who are martyred for their faith. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know what he said to me. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That are the, the ones who trust in Christ during the tribulation. They were not believers, then they become believers. They join the saints. They are glorified as they will be with us coming back. And then you have Old Testament saints gathered in the presence of the Lord. And I think of uh, Daniel chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3. They will be coming back. And uh, we have um, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints. They're all believers. They're justified by Christ. Amen. They are believers. They're all coming back. They're all going to be there. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31. It says that Jesus is coming back at that passage and returning with Him are His angels. He has the millions and millions and millions of saints. The myriads and myriads and myriads and myriads and thousands and millions of angels coming back. Can you imagine looking up into the sky and seeing this? Always called it the concert of the ages. There is going to be nothing like this ever. And what a light show that will be 
right out of the darkness where that's what, what happens, that's where He comes back. The radiance. So we have the King. We have the armies of the King. And He doesn't need the armies. Like I said, He's going to be the one doing the slaying. He gets the robe over His... He gets the robe that's covered with blood. And uh, we also are with Him though. Psalm 149.5 talks about that. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them with judgment written this and honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. And that's what we did last week. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right? We're going to be there. Amen. Without a doubt. The godly ones are going to be there with Him. We're coming to reign with Him. We're coming to reign with Him. Now, here's the rule of the king. The sovereign king here we look at verse 15. And verse 15 is the verse that is jam-packed with Old Testament quotes that are talking about the second coming. John just didn't take this out of what he saw and what he was given, but it's also out of the prophets. And that's why the Word of God is incredible. Words that were written 700 years before Christ. 700 years, almost 800 years for John. Who writes this? And they're all in agreement. Never are they ever doubting each other. They all complement each other. Although they didn't even know each other. Separated by 1,500 years of writers, others. Okay, four specific passages. One of them is Isaiah 11. Another one is Isaiah 49. I think we looked at uh, chapter 63 we read earlier. And Psalm 2. Those are four legitimate specific passages out of the Old Testament that are right here in 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Let's look at those four passages. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. That is the great kingdom chapter. You know, it's where the uh, lamb and the wolf and snakes are mentioned. Uh, but not like what we know today. Starts off with the branch talking about the Messiah and such. And verse 3, it says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision by what His ears hear. Or He will not judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision. But with righteousness, that's the idea there, He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It won't be a literal even sword. It's that it's 
the word that is the sword that strikes the people dead. He just speaks. And they're dead. Did you notice righteousness in there? Righteous judgment that we've talked about? Did you notice strike the earth with the rod of his mouth? The sword, which is Revelation 19, his mouth comes a sharp sword. Going on there in uh, Isaiah verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. Faithfulness, the belt about his loins. Remember faithfulness, he's faithful and true. And the wolf, you guys like this one, will dwell with the lamb. Literally? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not under the curse of the sin anymore. Man's sin. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Our little kids here, you know, can you imagine them by the hole of a, a, a cobra? Oh, it's nothing. It's okay. It's great. Everybody knows that it's safe. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. <laughs> they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And the whole earth... The knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, we could keep on reading, but do you get the idea how much of that came out of there that went right on into our Revelation 19? Uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Now this is talking about His virgin birth. Remember that? From the, or, or, or his birth, and we know it's a virgin birth. From the body of my mother, he named me, right? So he actually came out of her. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. See, nobody really knew who he was, for the most part, did they, when he came? He said to me, You are my servant. Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent... Well, we'll stop there. But he's talking about the sword that will be revealed ultimately. He came almost like a secret. It was a mystery the first time, but the second time, no mystery. It's all unveiled. What is the name of the, the book that we are studying? Revelation. Or the Apocalypse. What does that mean? To unveil. He unveils what was hidden and concealed in the Old Testament. He unveils it all and shows it. And now we're looking right into it. He showed that to Daniel even more so. And then he said, Now, shut up the book and conceal it. Nobody's going to be able to really understand this until the end times. Wow. I think we're getting it. It'll be fully revealed at time. But I think we're understanding it. We have the course of many, many, many years to look at and to see what's going on. But that's a strong messianic passage. Chapter 63 we read earlier. Psalm 2 
which we've kept referring to throughout Revelation here because we kept seeing a rod of iron. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. That, that means, folks, that during the kingdom, there's still going to be sin that needs to be stamped out. But coming back to the earth, He's going to defeat sin. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell a decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The very time that he comes back, here it is, the, the, the ultimate coronation of the king. Ask me and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance. Remember, he's the king of all kings, all the diadems. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. Look at this. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. As He comes and defeats all the kings, He will shatter them. He does it with a rod of iron. And He gives to us a rod of iron to rule with a rod of iron. Go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Verse 5, She gave birth to a son, a male child. This is... uh, Christ, right? Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then he'll be caught up to God and to his throne. Uh, the ultimate is coming back. He didn't get to, he didn't do that the first time, even though he is the King of Kings, even right now, but there is this time when this happens physically. Two, twenty-six and twenty-seven. It says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces. We just read that, didn't we? But who is he speaking of there? He's speaking of the overcomer. Who's the overcomer? Us. As I also received authority from my father, as I received authority from my father, I give authority to all the ones who overcome, the believers, the church, us. A rod of iron. First Corinthians six two says that we will rule. We will judge even angels. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Isaiah thirty two one. Okay, getting near the end of this. He strikes down the nations, he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Do you remember in chapter 14, 19, we were talking about the earth's harvest, the grain that was like a bowl judgment, right? And then, as Christ comes back in His judgment, it says in verse 18, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. Now, this is the, um, the grapes, right? Because our grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. 
Christ kills all the unbelievers when He comes back. Whoever's left, He gets... He kills them. The blood all over in that area. Uh, it resembles like a wine press and people just stomping on the grapes. And out of that comes the grape juice, which is a representation of really the blood. The blood that will come out of people as they are crushed, as they are killed. Perfect justice and judgment by Christ there. The wine press. We've read that before. We've seen it in our Old Testament passages there. and Here we are in verse 16 and we're ready to close it out. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written. Say it together. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I've got a feeling your Bible has all capital letters there. And of course... That is significant, isn't it? You know, there was a word directed to Domitian, a Roman emperor at that time during the first century in Rome, and he was wanting to be called God the Lord. He liked to parade down the streets in Rome and be called God the Lord. He was mentioned that many, many times and he rode past the peoples and the poets would cry out, Prince of the princes and the highest of the leaders. Imagine that. That's the secular world, folks. That's how bad and evil this world is. In other words, Domitian was a, really a predecessor of Hitler's, of Stalin's, of Lenin's, Mousy Tongue, all those world leaders that we have today and have gone before us, and they have pictures made of. Remember Saddam Hussein, and they would have pictures, and people would worship those leaders, and communist puppets is what they were. They still are. And people are worshiping them, told to worship whether they want to or not. They want to be exalted constantly. That's like Lucifer who wanted to be worshipped. I want to be like the Most High. So that's what the worst of mankind is. They want to be like God, calling their own shots. And that's the mark of our flesh. We want to call the shots. And whenever it says He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it means He's sovereign. We are not living for ourselves. We are living for the King. He's sovereign. And we bow to Him. We've been bowing to Him all day today. Have you been identifying with this all day today and agreeing with it and confessing it? That is saying, God, You're sovereign. We worship You. You are holy. You are a great God. You are going to put an end to all this sin and rebellion. This is our Lord, folks. We see Him being revealed. The book of Revelation. What is it? The revelation of Jesus Christ. We've just exalted Him as high as I can possibly do it. 
the best way I can do it is just read the word there. And we all go, Amen. We pray. Father, great God, You are sovereign. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now as we prepare our hearts our minds to take the Lord's Supper, we're in communion because we know that one day You promise that You will take it with us. Today we'll take it with the body of Christ, all those who are proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and their King. Only for them, only do they take this Lord's Supper. But you will not take it with us today. You will take it with us at that great marriage supper of the Lamb and throughout all the time of the kingdom. We wait for that day. In the meantime, we remember what you did with the disciples and what you've done for us in your death and burial and resurrection. Lord, that is part of the message of the Lord's Supper. May we give you glory as you are the Holy God of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.